1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Well, by my count, this is the eighth time that I've uh, tried to speak on this subject of idolatry. And uh, I think this will be the last time, at least in this series. Uh, idolatry is such a big subject in the scriptures that uh, I'm sure it will come up again uh, as we look into the Bible. Just about any place we look, we'll find something related to this subject. Um, there are many areas, actually, that we haven't been able to deal with. Uh, I've tried to hit on some of the major ones, but uh, there's a lot of contemporary idols that I think we've probably not uh, touched on, but uh, at least this will give us, hopefully will give us some reference point and way of viewing things that maybe will help us as we seek to to go uh, and do what John said here, to guard ourselves from idols. Uh, we do need to constantly be on guard against any false gods of our age. We said that any conception of God that is at variance with his self-revelation in Christ is an idol. Any conception of God that is at variance with his self-revelation in Christ is an idol. I think that's really the context. That's why John finishes off this whole letter with this, this uh, brief little phrase, little children, guard yourselves from idols, because he's, all, he's spent the, the letter explaining who Christ is, what he's done. And then he says, now guard yourself from anything that's at variance with that uh, truth, those truths that I've presented related to Christ. And if we take that as our definition, or one of the definitions, that means that most people still practice idolatry because they're worshiping something, living for something other than, than Christ. Well, I'd like to just briefly review some of the idols that we've looked at over the past few months. Before I do that, let me just give you another definition that... Uh, that I've used throughout these mes messages. Idolatry is giving yourself to a person, idea, or thing that displaces God as central in your life. Anything that displaces God as central in your life is an idol. Uh, it's the substitution of something created for the Creator. Um, I took some of these thoughts. I don't know if I've ever given recognition to this, but there's a book called Idols for Destruction by Herbert Schlossberg. Or Schlossberg. And uh, he takes that, that uh, title from Hosea 8.4. We won't look it up, but you can look it up sometime. Basically, the idea is if you worship idols, you're going to be destroyed. Idols for Destruction. And so I want to give credit to him uh, if I hadn't done it before. Actually, a very good definition for idolatry, if you just want a good 
straightforward scriptural definition is Romans 1.25. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie, or it's the actual literal is exchanging the truth for truth of God for the lie, and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. That's just a good nutshell uh, definition of idolatry. And all cultures have their idols. That means we, here in America, if you live in China, China, Thailand, South America, wherever, you're going to have idols that you have to. They may not be exactly the same from one culture to another, but all cultures have their idols. And because they so permeate a culture, the people that live in that culture, it's hard for them to recognize and resist those idols because you're surrounded by them. So we need God to show us the popular idols of our culture in our day and age. And I've tried to hit on some of them. The first one we looked at was the idol of nature. Sometimes idolatry involves making things like the the trees or the sky or rivers or animals into a god, but modern man has replaced this uh, individual nature, these individual nature gods with nature itself as an idol. The idea that nature is all there is. If nature is all there is, then that's your God. If nature is the whole of reality, that ends up making nature God. So naturalism is one form of modern idolatry. Again, what is it? It's exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Another prominent idol in our culture is covetousness. Excessive desire to have what someone else has. And that's very close to greed, which is excessive desire for more of something, usually money. And we, we talked about this thing of idolatry often involves something that can be good, but uh, if you desire it too much, then it's an idol. Nothing wrong with wanting some money to live on. But if you desire it too much, then it becomes an idol. One person called this area of greed and coveting the idol of stuff. And I think that's, you know, one of the big idols of, of uh, our contemporary culture, the idol of stuff. Jesus said we need to be on guard against every form of greed. And he told us that mammon is a god that can easily dominate our lives. So this is a big one for our culture. I, I, I think uh, we could probably spend a number of weeks on, on just this area of greed. Many people, for many people, money is a rival god, capable of inspiring devotion and giving a false joy and a false sense of security and power. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So how do you deal with this? Well, something greater has to enamor you, has to take its place. The majesty of Christ is what breaks the tyranny of coveting things. With Christ in our life, there can be contentment and thankfulness and generosity. Now, that undercuts this thing of greed and covetousness. God can work those things in our heart and break 
break the hold of this idol of covetousness, the majesty of Christ. The next idol we looked at was power. Power in and of itself is not evil, but the misuse of power has brought great evil into this world. Power can become an idol whenever authority structures are set up, and that can be in the state or in religion, in the home, in business, and in every human organization where power is used in ungodly ways, ungodly manner. We spent most of the time on the the power of the state because that's such a big one. We saw that this, this problem was there in the early church, and uh, especially in since the church grew up in the in the midst of the mighty Roman Empire, with all its power, Christians in the first century had to deal with the power of the state, especially it was as it was tried to be forced upon them this uh, idea of uh, worship of the emperor. They had to acknowledge the emperor as lord. These these early emperors were taking divine titles to themselves, and uh, people like Nero claimed to be divine, and Christians faced the issue of bowing to Caesar or acknowledging Christ as Lord. That was a first century problem, but totalitarian states in the 20th century and today all around the world are responsible for the deaths of millions of people. So this is no small idol when we talk about this this uh, idol of power. For us, there, and I think for Christians throughout the ages, there will always be this constant tension uh, to determine how to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to render to God the things that are God's. Caesar will always want to take more. The overpowerful state is certainly a contemporary idol that must be dealt with. An idol that's closely associated with that, we're just just kind of trying to remind you here of what we've looked at. Closely associated with the idol of power is the idol of religion. Religion itself can become an idol when a religious system takes the place of God. Religion can be just another form of power play. Something used to advance an ungodly agenda, some man-made agenda. Religion is easily used that way. And we looked especially at the religion of Christianity because that's the one that affects us most directly. When a religious system becomes ultimate, you have an idol, even if that system purports to be Christian. Now, we made the distinction between a true Christian religion, which is spiritual and involves knowing God through Christ, and the religion of Christianity, which can be just another world religion. So it's always important to differentiate between superficial Christianity and true spiritual Christianity. The one has done much harm, the other has done immense good. The idol of religion has great power over people, we said, for three primary reasons. First, it appeals to the flesh. You can think, for instance, of the health and wealth gospel, so-called gospel. 
it appeals to the flesh. So it has power over people. Secondly, it has power because it's empowered by Satan. Uh, I think you could say this. Satan loves religion. Satan loves religion. He hates Christ, but he loves religion. So there's this empowerment, uh, demonic empowerment that's there related to the idol of religion. And then lastly, the idol of religion is almost always combined with worldly power, which means that there can be very negative consequences if you don't comply with the current cultural, civil religion. All cultures have their idols, and usually one of the very biggest ones is religion. But the gospel stands against all idolatry and especially against this idol of religion. It's such a big one that we spent three times looking at it, and uh, we mentioned how that even the Jewish religion, the Jewish religious system in the Old Testament, not only uh, did they worship idols, it became an idol itself. People were trusting in the system, which is what religion will do. You, you, instead of t- trusting in God, trusting in Christ, you begin to trust in this religious system, which what the Jews did in the Old Testament. Uh, they had the temple. They had the rituals. They had all these things that had been set up, and they trusted in that instead of in God and got off into unbelievable evil, even as they were supposedly serving God. Things like ritual prostitution and child sacrifice. All the while thinking things were fine because they had the temple and the other religious forms that they were going through. Then we went to the New Testament, New Testament times, uh, where the church had to deal with not only this idolatrous Jewish system, but they also had to deal with the Roman religious system centered in the worship of Caesar. When John, when John wrote this, little children, guard yourselves from idols, he was, I think, at least partly warning against going back to the shadows of the Jewish system or giving in to the pressure of the Roman state religion. And there was a great pressure there because this was the time of great persecution. If you didn't go along with that civil religion that the state was promoting, the Roman state religion, you were in trouble. So, for the first 300 years of its existence, the Church of God was persecuted, first by the Jewish leaders and then in an even greater measure by the Roman government. But all that changed, as you remember, I hope, in the time of Constantine, 313. That's a very important date uh, for the uh, in church history. Because at that time, instead of being persecuted, Christianity was first of all accepted and then mandated, required, as the religion of the empire. So we looked at how this state church system brought some good and much harm. This idea of Christendom, the uh, thought that there was this earthly political kingdom that was Christian, Christendom, 
everybody in this uh, political kingdom uh, was supposedly under the church church's teachings. Well, that developed and spread throughout the Western, throughout Western civilization. And through the Middle Ages and beyond, this massive system of Christendom used persecution and banishment and torture and the killing of heretics to accomplish its purposes, and often the heretics were the true Christians. We saw that we have to reject this type of institutionalized state, state-sponsored state religion. And we have to maintain a clear distinction between Christ's spiritual kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. Then the last two idols that we dealt with were sensuality and self, or you could call them flesh-pleasing and self-worship, and they go together. I, I don't think there would be too much debate, at least amongst us, that one of the great idols of our culture is this thing of fleshly indulgence. It's just so big, it's, it's uh, taken for granted, fleshly indulgence. And if you stand against it, you'll be in trouble. But a Christian has to stand against it. If you don't please the flesh, you will suffer in the flesh. Paul said we have to suffer in the flesh. Well, one of the reasons you have to suffer in the flesh as a Christian in our kind of a culture is because you don't go along with this this fleshly indulgence. Uh, Let me give you an example. This has to do in the area of homosexuality and all that's involved there. We're in a situation now where in in, uh, some places of employment, if you say anything against homosexuality, you're going to have to go through through some special training to get your mind, uh, what would be the right word, indoctrinated, I guess is the right word, into thinking that your opposition of homosexuality is abnormal and homosexuality is normal. You're the weird one, you see. You're the, you're the strange one. So, uh, I just point that out to say that this area of Unbridled indulgence is a big idol in our culture. And if you stand against it, you'll have some problems. But again, that's part of what it means to suffer in the flesh, what Paul talked about. Well, the biggest of all, and like I said, it goes closely along with this one, is this idol of self. It originated back at the time of Adam and Eve, when they believed that satanic lie, you shall be like God. From that time on, self-will, not God's will, began to dominate humanity. From the biblical standpoint, there's really only two types of people in the world. Those who worship the true God and those who believe the satanic lie 
that you can live for yourself and on your own. That's the lie. Exchanging the truth of God for the lie. The lie. That you can live autonomously. That you don't need God. That you can be like God. Well, that's, that's the big one. A person may say that they don't believe in God or they may say they believe in a thousand different gods, but in the end, they've set themselves up as God. They are, worship, they are worshiping something false that they have projected onto reality. That's why the Bible over and over again talks about idols as being falsehoods or delusions or vanities or lies because you're projecting a lie onto reality anytime you worship an idol. We ended the last message then by looking at the wonderful promise of the new covenant. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. The gospel defeats idolatry in the believer's life because it lays the axe to the root of the whole system, this idol of selfishness. You can't come into Christianity as a selfish person. The one thing you do is say, Lord, I give myself to you. That's, that's just coming in. So it lays the axe to the root of this idol of selfishness, which means that all these other idols are going to be taken care of. may not be right away, but they will be taken care of. So that's a brief review. I'd like to close this, these messages on idolatry by looking at one great principle that the Bible teaches related to this subject. And this is it. You will become like what you worship. If you don't remember anything else, just remember that. And uh, that's not original with me. You can go online and find all kinds of messages, good messages on that subject, because it is a very clear biblical theme, and we're going to look at it this morning. There's even a book by that name. Uh, Becoming what you worship. A person's character and actions are a reflection of their values, and their values are derived from their God. <laughs> so the kind of person you and I become depends directly on what we worship. What we ascribe worth to, which is what where we get this word worth, worship, what we ascribe worth to, determines what we will become. One person said it this way, If you set your desire on anything other than the true God, you will become like that, and it won't be pretty. Desire set on the right object, the one true God, ennobles and grows a human being. Desire set on the wrong thing corrupts us and debases us. That's what, that's what Romans 1 is teaching, you see. You go into idolatry and then all this corruption and dehumanization follows from it. If we worship the creature rather than the creator, we become more and more corrupt and less and less human. That's what God designed a human to be.
we'll even lose natural affection. That's what Paul teaches there. So let's look at some examples of this, uh, this principle that we become like what we worship. First of all, an idol. Idols are stupid, dumb, and senseless. That's a good thing to become, isn't it? <laughs> stupid, dumb, and senseless. Let's turn to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. And we'll start reading. Well, let's just start with verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols, the false worshipers of false gods, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have, ear, have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will be like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Those who make them will be like them. Of course, that doesn't mean that you lose your sight or your hearing uh, or your speech, but you will not be hearing the things worth hearing, and you won't be seeing the things worth seeing, and you won't be saying the things worth saying. That's the point he's making. You'll be deaf and blind and dumb to the things that really matter. So, this is a basic principle. In fact, just to make sure that you don't miss this one, the psalmist God had it put in the Psalms twice. We won't read it again because it's just the same thing. But in Psalm 135, 15 through 18, you can look it up later, it says exactly the same thing. God put it in there twice so we wouldn't miss it. Idolatry will cause you to lose discernment. There's a, a long uh, commentary on idolatry in, in Isaiah 44. Uh, the whole, almost the whole chapter. But verses 19 and 20 says this about the idolater. It says, He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, Is this not a lie in my right hand? You're so deceived by these things that you can't even realize, here I'm holding this idol, and this is a lie. I took some of this, the, the example, of course, he gives there is, I took some of this wood and built a fire to uh, cook my meal, and I took some, another part of it and carved an idol. And I said, I'm holding that thing in my hand, and I, I'm going to worship it now. He said, How, it's, you're so blinded by this idolatry. So, the point is, is that a person that uh, goes into idolatry, and I'm not just thinking about the kind of idol you hold in your hand, we're think, talking about the ones we've looked at here over the last few months. <clears throat> you lose discernment. So, the next thing, 
Idols are vain, empty, and worthless. If we embrace them, our lives will become vain and empty. We won't turn to this, but you might want to look at it later, 2 Kings 17.15. And this is in the context of idolatry. Let me just read this. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers, and his warnings which he warned, with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. Don't get into the idolatry of those nations. But the, the phrase there I want you to pick up on, they followed vanity and became vain. We see the principle again in Jeremiah 2.5. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me that they went, went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? Again, the context is idolatry. In 116 it says, They have forsaken me and offered sacrifices to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. They worshipped something that was empty, an idol, and became empty themselves. And that's really, sometimes we talk about these broken cisterns. Well, that's the context that that phrase comes up in. Let me just read the verse here. He said, Jeremiah says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, if we give ourselves to emptiness, these idols we've talked about, maybe we could say fame or fortune or pleasure, those type of things, if you give yourself to those things, our lives will be empty in regard to the things that really matter. And we'll, find, we'll end up realizing that we've wasted our lives. We'll be like broken cisterns that can hold no water. Even though you put more water in a broken cistern, it just drains out. You're wasting that, you see, because it's a broken cistern. It, you're, you're following after emptiness, and you'll be empty. Idols are like that. They'll always let you down. They'll always leave you empty in the end. <clears throat> we see this principle again in the fact that if we worship perverted things, we'll become perverted. <clears throat> you remember the prophets of Baal? They worshiped their idol there on Mount Carmel by crying out with loud voice and cutting themselves, it says, according to their custom, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out. <clears throat> they were following a perverted idol, you see, Consequently, their customs were perverted. This was a custom to cut yourself like this till the blood gushed out. The myths surrounding many of the pagan gods portray them as very perverted. The gods themselves were perverted, so naturally if you worship the gods, that's what you're going to be like too, <clears throat> especially in the area of sexuality. So it's not surprising that sexual perversion becomes part of the lifestyle of those devoted to these false gods. And we see that all around us today. 
let me just say as a little aside here that the way the world's religions are presented in the college classes is a very sanitized version of those religions. Most of these religions that you study, these world religions, are incredibly perverted if you really see what's done. Uh, Amy Carmichael wrote a book back in 1905 called Things As They Are. She was talking about what she had experienced over in India in relationship to the Hindu religion. And she had a hard time getting the book published, and people didn't e wouldn't even believe that things were like this. It was so bad what was going on in the caste system and what they were doing with these little girls in these Hindu temples. Uh, she had, the second edition, when it came out, she had she included a bunch of endorsements from other missionaries just to show that that's what they were experiencing too because people would not believe how perverse this religion was. Yeah. <clears throat> Sometimes you get some feel for it as the Bible explains some of what goes on in some of those Canaanite religions. But uh, we just have to realize that what we usually hear is a very sanitized version of what those religions are like. They're incredibly evil. So if you're worshiping a perverse God, you'll become like that God, more and more perverted and perverse. Uh, along that same line, then, if we worship evil things, we will become more and more evil. That's, if your God's like that, that's what you're going to be like. The worship of Molech is an example of this. We brought this out in the past that people worshiped this God in, in the Old Testament times by causing their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, which meant that they were burning their babies alive. And God tells us in various places, tells those people that this is such an abomination to him that he's going to judge their evil by giving them over to even more evil right in that same uh, style, I guess you'd say. God judges those who run after false gods by making them resemble what they run after. So let's turn to Ezekiel. I want to point this out to you. Pretty graphic example. If you turn to Ezekiel chapter 5, keep, keep your place there, 5.10. And then Ezekiel 23. I guess we'll start with 23. Ezekiel Ezekiel twenty three thirty seven. I I think I said twenty seven thirty seven. For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. Thus they have committed adultery with their idols, and have caused their sons, whom they bore bore to me, to pass through the fire. To them as food, and again they have done this to me. They have defiled my sanctuary 
in the same day and have profaned my Sabbath. Verse 39. And when they had slaughtered their children for their idols, they entered my sanctuary on the same day to profane it. Profane it. And lo, thus they did within my house. So they were still you know, thinking they're worshiping God. At the same time, they're sacrificing their, their children, uh, causing them to pass through the fire. Now, with that context, turn back to Ezekiel chapter 5. Because this is what God says he's going to do to those type of people. Ezekiel 5.10. He's talking about bringing destruction upon these people. Idols of destruction like we talked about. Brings destruction. Therefore fathers will eat their sons among you. And the sons will eat their fathers, for I will execute judgment on you and scatter all your remnant to every wind. So as I live, declares the Lord, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable idols and with all your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw, and my eyes shall have no pity, and I will not spare. But you see what he says he's going to do? They're going to... They've been offering their children to idols to be devoured by these idols. He said, all right, if that's the kind of God you want to worship, you'll be devouring your own children. This happened in the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. I think this, this account was probably fulfilled even earlier than that, but this happened in the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. when the Romans surrounded it, starved them out. People were eating their own children. This is a judicial blinding and hardening that God sends upon people because of their idolatry. He brings more of their their perversion and their evil to bear upon them because of their false gods. Well, you can say that those things only apply in ancient history, but that's not true. Now, all you have to do is look to the Middle East today with this group called ISIS. What, what is this? This is a people following a false god and consequently doing unspeakable evil. But you don't have to go to the Middle East. You could go to Princeton University. Because at Princeton they have a man teaching as a professor of bioethics named Peter Singer. Now Peter Singer is a proponent of the first idol that we looked at, the idol of nature. You know, we think might think, well, that's, you know, that's kind of benign, this just naturalism. No, it is not. It's, it's tremendously evil. It's a false god, and all false gods are evil. Well, so is the naturalism. So anyway, you have this man, Peter Singer, who's an evolutionist. So he speaks for animal rights, and against what he calls speciesism. What's speciesism? Well, it's, 
It's like racism where you have, you know, a racist says that one race is inferior to another. Well, if you're, if you're into speciesism, you say that, that uh, one species of animals is inferior to another, which he says that's what the human race is doing. And he says that's so wrong because all, all the species are equal. What's that mean? Well, that means, I'll, I'll tell you what it means. In his book, Practical Ethics, now this guy teaches ethics at Princeton, okay? This is what he says. The life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig or a dog or a chimpanzee. Now that's evil, see? That's... That's Princeton. That's the university that was, that was founded by Christians a long time ago. Now they have this man teaching bioethics, saying that the life of a newborn baby is of less value than that of a pig. What I'm saying is that these idols are evil, and if you worship them, you will say and do evil things. I, I would think that the worshipers, worshipers of Molech would like to have Peter Singer teaching at their schools. I mean, we're going to sacrifice our sons and daughters to Molech. Might as well have good justification for it, whether less than a pig. I'm trying to make the point that you don't have to go to the Middle East to see how these idols affect people. Lastly, I would say that idols are dead things and those that worship them are turning towards death. And that's both physically and spiritually. Spiritually, Idols will keep you from seeing your sin and your need of a Savior. Which is what will keep you. That's what makes a person turn to Christ. They see their need of Christ, but a false God keeps you from seeing that, you see. Consequently, it's going to bring spiritual, both physical and spiritual death. God says, he who finds me finds life, but he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. It's Proverbs 8.35. Following dead idols is the way of death. Following Christ is the way of life. The point is, is you become like what you worship. That's what we've looked at here from these various examples. But the really important thing for us here today is to remember the positive, the positive side of this principle. If we worship the true God, we'll become more and more like Him. If we give Him the glory that rightly belongs to Him, we'll find that our lives are being conformed to the image of Christ. From glory to glory, he's changing us. Since God is holy and righteous and loving, these attributes will be progressively part of our lives as we worship him. We'll become more and, lo- more, and more like what we were, we were created to be, beings made in the image of God. If we worship False gods, we lose our true humanity. We're deceived and degraded and ultimately destroyed by our idols. But in 
if we worship the true God, we embrace our true humanity and our reason for living. You might put it this way and think of it this way. False gods can't see, but the true God sees everything. And as we worship him, we'll see things more clearly. False gods can't hear, but the true God hears everything. And as we worship him, we will more and more hear what his spirit is saying to us. False gods are senseless vanities, but the true God is infinitely wise. And as we worship him, we'll grow in wisdom and knowledge and have our minds renewed daily. False gods are powerless to do any good, but the true God is all-powerful. He made everything and he's in charge of everything. And as we worship him, we'll more and more be empowered to serve him and serve others. False gods are evil and perverse, but the true God is holy and righteous. And as we worship him, that's what we'll be like more and more, holy and righteous. False gods are dead, but as we worship the living God, we'll find life forevermore. What we revere, we will ultimately resemble. What we revere, we will ultimately resemble. And that's a wonderful truth for a Christian. If we'll just worship our Creator, we will be like Him. Well, I'll close by just pointing out to you that we said that Romans 1, uh, which talks about idolatry, tells us the downward spiral of false worship, worshiping of idols. But the contrast is Romans 12. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't worship those false gods, because it's all downhill. Worship the true God. Present your bodies to Him as your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, the way up, you see. Just, just worship the true God and you'll, you'll prove what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there's the contrast, Romans 1 and Romans 12. So, little children, speaking, God speaking to all of his little children, guard yourselves from idols. <clears throat>